Hello, welcome to Head on History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. I'm glad you could join me. Um, this is a special episode of Head on History. Uh, I was talking to our sound guy, sound producer, V, earlier, and apparently I've done three Head on History specials so far, and I've only had like three regular episodes, but I'm hoping that that's all right with you. Uh, for those that are new to the podcast, the Head on History specials are basically a break away from the normal thematic you know, organization of the podcast. The podcast is organized seasonally, and they have 10 episodes, and each one of these 10 episodes are linked thematically. Season one was the chronology of Islamic history. Season two was the uh, th- was a thematic approach to Islamic history, looking at the major themes, gender, sexuality, intellectual and cultural history, etc. Season three is other Islam. So in other words, all three episodes in a, or all ten episodes in a season all fa- uh, fall into some form of umbrella. Head on history special episodes are completely unrelated to anything, and they're an attempt for me to really bring the podcast into conversation with what's going on in the contemporary moment. And I think this is uh, both a somewhat radical act for a historian to do, but also an important act, because history is not just the study of the past, but it's the way that contemporary people remember that past. And how that past is remembered is always political. It is rooted in our national identities. It is rooted in the way we talk about others. It's the way in we engage with the state and the world and society. So, you know, it's important to, to kind of uh, engage with the contemporary moment, which is why Head on History specials uh, have tried to contextualize the Iran deal, uh, the Ram- Ramadan with uh, the uh, move of Jerusalem uh, or the embassy to Jerusalem. So today, Today's Head on History special, I actually want to talk about something that's a little bit more pedagogical, and that is AP World History. Now, some of you might not be interested in this topic. Some of you might be tuned off and say, this is such a nerdy topic, even I don't care about it. But I think this is a really important topic to cover, and I'm, I'm taking a bit of a risk covering it. I may lose a little bit of my audience who are not interested in kind of this side of politics or the kind of the politics of schools, if you will, uh, what happens at the education level. But I think it, it's important to engage in this conversation um, because it has some far-reaching implications. I'm going to use this platform to hopefully introduce you to something that is going on at K-12 through um, and maybe, uh, you know, it'll be of use to you. Maybe it'll generate some buzz. Uh, at the moment, I've been talking to some of my friends about this and my non-historian friends just kind of look at me like I'm a crazy person. You know, uh, historians often feel like Cassandra. Cassandra is this famous Greek prophetess who was cursed by Apollo and all of her prophecies were true, but no one believed her and no one listened to her. And that's a lot like what historians feel like. We see shit happening. We go, this is a bad idea. Don't do this. And we recognize the kind of deep impact of certain decisions. But no one listens to us. Like, oh, no, who cares what historians have to say? And then, of course, in a few years, we end up being right. I mean, if you guys had listened to, to historians in 2015 and 16, you would have probably been forewarned about a lot of the shit that's going on right now. Um, so anyways, uh, you know, feeling a little bit like Cassandra the past few weeks in which crazy stuff stuff is going on and I feel like I'm shouting into the wind, I thought I'd take this to the podcast. So there's this thing called AP World History. And a decision has been made by a college board, the nonprofit uh, organization that runs AP World History, to divide up 
this class to no longer test on anything pre-1450. So the ancient and medieval world no longer counted. From 1450 to now will be on the AP test. Now the AP test is short for Advanced Placement Test. The AP test is an examination that people take at the end of a college prep class. These classes are known as AP classes or advanced placement. And they're AP Biology, AP Chem, AP Latin, uh, AP History. You take this class for roughly about a year. And at the end of that year, you then take a standardized test at which you are graded out of five. The score you get is then transferable to the grade you would get at a college course. So you could take an AP chemistry class and then not have to take a college-level chemistry class when you go to college. It looks good on your transcript so that when you're applying to college, if you have a lot of AP classes, like, oh, wow, this person is really college-ready. Um, it also looks good in regards to the type of classes that you need to take, meeting the qualifications of the school. So... It has a huge impact on K to 12. So why is this? Why do I want to talk about this change in AP world history? Who gives a shit? I'll tell you why it's important. But before we understand why it's important, we need to understand what the hell world history is. So world history is a relatively new branch of history that really has emerged in the really the past quarter century or so. And I say new because it's relative in that regards. Um, and what it is, is it's a shift away from national histories, the history of America, the history of Britain, the history of France, to a larger scale version of history that is both uh, expanding it uh, chronologically as well as expanding it regionally so that you no longer study, say, Britain, but you study what happened from 1800 to uh, the 20th century globally. You're looking at these kind of big processes. Now, it's called, it's considered new because it emerged, all of kind of contemporary history emerged in the 1800s as a discipline. And they were intimately tied with the rise of nation states. Histories are at their heart identity forming. They always have been. They're always about identity. They help you understand who you are as a person and what your relationship is to your group, to society, and to your and to the state as a whole. The early nationalist histories were all about creating national identities. It's the story of Thomas Jefferson and, and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. That is the America's history. It's why we we believe America is, uh, you know, founded on freedom, even though there's a hundred and 40 countries, I think, that all have some form of notion of freedom in them, or 120 at least of them certainly do. Canada has freedom, the UK has freedom, France has freedom. Literally the motto of, of, of France invo involves fraternitas, that is fraternity, and libertas, that is freedom. So fraternity and liberty is literally in its motto. Um, but we, why is America the country of the home of the brave and the land of the free? or whatever it is that comes from the national histories that we wrote, right? Why does every kid know who George Washington is and Abraham Lincoln is, and why does it matter? Well, it helps us tell us a little bit about ourselves. It's why we chant USA at bars and whatnot, because there's a story of us that is told, and that story of us is told in history. Now, there is another identity that, that also exists in, apart from national identity, and that is civilizational identity. And Western Civ began roughly in the late 
19th and early 20th century as another form of identity that linked people across national boundaries. So you had national history on one end. This was the history, the story of us. The story of us then connects with other stories of us. The U.S.'s story of us, Britain's story of us, France's story of us, and all of that became Western Civ. Western Civ emerged out of sort of intellectual study of the classical world. But Western Civ took on the political project of connecting the classical world, the Ro world of Rome and Greece, the Hellenic and Roman world, the Pi world of Paideia, and the Hellenic world to the contemporary nation-state. In other words, they created a trajectory, one that actually doesn't exist in historical record, but was made up, so to speak, as a political project to connect uh, the ancient Greek democracy to American democracy. This civilizational identity unified, created a sort of a Eurocentric world with the United States and Europe. Now, this world doesn't really exist in, histor in a historical fashion. There's, I mean, just look at a country like Italy. Italy is a series of city-states. It's a series of autonomous states like Florence and Rome that often have regional differences, dialectical differences, cultural differences that even barely are held together by national identities. If you ask, tell, you speak to a Florentine, the Florentines quite regularly point out that they deign to be considered Italians. That they're actually first and foremost Florentine, that they are from friends. They are not Italian, or if they are Italian, they're barely so, right? An Italian identity is really a contemporary thing. Yet somehow Western Civ, I mean, despite those kind of literal differences within a country, one can even argue that the United States is a series of small countries. Comparing the South to, say, the West or the West to the Northeast, right, there's massive differences there. But despite those kind of differences within nation, Western Civ proposes that there is more similarities across nations, that even though Italians can barely consider themselves Italians, that there were was this thing called Western Civ that Americans and Italians could uh, agree on. And that was really a product of the kind of transatlantic alliance, the alliance that, that eventually becomes NATO, that becomes kind of the EU. It is the product of the kind of post-World War I moment, this attempt to really create a civilizational identity. This civilizational identity is kind of the early attempts at world history. It is a history that is bigger in scope, both in region and in chronology, and it is also um, beyond nation-states. Unfortunately, however, it is Eurocentric, meaning that it is really the world history of Europe, whatever Europe is. Remember, even Europe is a sort of imagined place. And it isn't until the kind of mid-1950s that we start to see a shift away from this, this argument that this is far too Eurocentric. We need to move in a direction. You can't create a history that says there's Western Civ and then nothing else. I mean, you, you, even, West, even Westerners, quote-unquote Westerners, acknowledge the deep links between these, these different regions, so-called regions. If you've been following along my regular episodes, I've been talking about the Maghreb, that is Islam in North Africa and Spain, and particularly the way it intersects with Europe. And you'll see that there is a deep global connection that's happening in places like Sicily, that's happening in places like Marrakesh, and that are uh, truly, it's really global that you have people speaking French and Arabic and Berber languages, and even uh, various Hindi and, and Greek and Syriac, 
all in one city. And so there's this global moon. So how do you teach that history? Well, the kind of first real attempts at kind of really bringing together world history was a guy named Burdell. Burdell comes out of the Annals School. The Annals School is a particular branch of, uh, of history that was done in France. It's a deeply inspired by the works of Marx. It is an examination of trade and the economy. It's a history of societies. And takes this thing called societies and economies and examines them, particularly the way economies intersect with one another. These so-called global economies are the early markings of kind of globalization. And the Annals School in particular saw history as rooted deep within time. That it was not just a history that you did, you know, the 1950s to the 1960s. No, that you did a history that would reach far back in the book of memory that would go back deep. And so he wrote two really big books, Civilization and Capitalism, 15th century to 18th century. This is 800 years of history uh, done that really looks at this thing called civilization and capitalism and sees how civilization is fundamentally produced by capital markets. And then another book called The Mediterranean and the Mediterranean World in the Age of Philip II. This examines, it was a deep root kind of chronology of Mediterranean history. So not looking at France, not looking at Italy, but looking at how all these countries touch on this central body of water known as the Mediterranean. So in addition to kind of introducing world history, this was also the, an, an introduction to kind of oceanic history and trade history. And this is probably Burdell's most lasting, profound legacy. That world history in, in, you know, in this text, in his writings, is to imagine, quote, to imagine a hundred frontiers, not one, some political, some economic, and some cultural. That is to say that historians should resist the temptation of treating any sort of unit of measurement or analysis as distorted and functional on itself. That is, don't take the nation-state, France, as a given. And instead, don't treat that as a discrete functional lens or unit of analysis. And instead, recognize that there are hundreds of frontiers that are political, economic, and cultural, and how these interact with one another. Uh, from Bentley, we had kind of three other attempts at, uh, from Burdell, I should say, there are three other attempts at, at world history that kind of really develop world history in the past quarter century. Uh, first, you start to see the pedagogy of world history. Western Civ is already being taught at most universities. It's the most popular history class being taught. Universe history departments start to introduce Asian civilizations into uh, a class. So you end up having Western Civ and Asian civilizations. If you go to, for example, my alma mater, UCLA, you will still find it. You will find a Western Civ course and you will find an Asian civilizations course, which generally covers the Middle East, South Asia, East Asia, all of it, right? So there is these kind of civilizational definitions. Part of these kind of separations of Western Civ and Asian civilization is a product of the 19th century's colonial project. That is, the Orientalism, this idea that there is this discrete category known as the West or Western Ziv, and there's this discrete category known as the Orient, and that you could flatten it all into one big category. Now, these ended up being kind of a lens of analysis that people would try to understand the world through. 
there was some pushback at Northwestern University, actually. Leftin Stavarnios, I probably mispronounced his name horribly, horribly, Stavrianos, that's how you say it, Leftin Stavrianos, introduced the first real kind of course called World History. And world history as a pedagogical tool was an attempt to take Western Civ and move away from that Eurocentric model, to look at those deep root questions, to look at these uh, big processes and how nation states emerged, how global capitalism emerged, globalization, colonialism, capitalism, etc. How these kind of big processes emerged in the group in the world and kind of look at them through massive chronology uh, that is starting with the beginnings of civilizations of recorded time and ending when the contemporary moment and there's been debates about how to teach it you divide it up over kind of three courses is now two or three courses is now the standard practice you do a kind of pre-modern world and then the early modern world and then the modern world but in reality, all of these kind of categorizations, these kind of uh, frameworks, if you will, or bracketings of chronology, are like the, their geographic counterparts an attempt to really kind of uh, limit history into some form of understandable unit. So as Western Civ was starting to shift into world civilization, history itself was also going through a kind of radical transformation. The post-World War II moment produced the area studies. The CIA funded uh, the area studies around the world. These were linguistic-based studies, Middle Eastern studies, South Asian studies, uh, China studies, Japan studies, etc. Right? These kind of ethnic studies that emerged were all produced by the CIA, and they were an attempt to really try to uh, create a a new cadre of scholars that could then work in the foreign service as language and cultural experts, people who could go out with a, with a military unit and help them uh, in, interact with locals, would help to translate encoded messages, would help to uh, become kind of subject matter experts on the politics of, say, Egypt or Iran or whatnot, and could work at the State Department or uh, at the CIA or the Foreign uh, Affairs Office. So there they created these area studies. These area studies were an attempt to move away from that Eurocentric history that had kind of dominated history departments for the first half of the 20th century. All of this kind of came together with the rise of this new world history that took off, that started in the 1950s, as I mentioned, but really started to take root in to the departments in the 90s with the 2000s known as the global turn. So after after Lefton and Northwestern University, there was a, new books that emerged. In 1963, you had William McNeil's Rise of the West, A History of the Human Community. And in 1976, you had Plagues and People. And William McNeil, who won a massive presidential award, was probably more than any other scholar popularized world history. And world history ended up replacing, as a result of these kind of texts and works, Western Civ. That world history became the new survey course that students would have to take. And world history was to introduce students to both historical methodology, to deep root thinking, to understand these kind of big processes, but also as a way of making them kind of culturally competent global citizens. Right, that your students would leave college and they would know something if they met a Jewish student or a Hindu student or a Muslim colleague, that they would know a thing or two about the world, in other words, that it was about producing this sort of competent student. Unfortunately, while the, the kind of motives were 
were good in that regards. The framework as found in the kind of requirements ended up being somewhat problematic. What ended up happening in most universities is that U.S. history ended up being a survey class that was required. In order to graduate college, at least at the UCs and many of the Cal States, you had to take a U.S. history course, either one semester or one year long. That was a requirement. It was a part of civic duty, understand where the United States come from. World history was then an elective, and it was a useful elective. You could go and take, you could go and take world history, and it would fulfill a series of requirements. Usually, requirements about like humanities, cultural literacy, and global literacy. But this created a a, a weird structure, right? U.S. history required world history elective. U.S. history on par with the rest. So you would have. The U.S. versus the rest. Literally, a year to teach all of U.S. history versus a year to teach, you know, the history of, I don't know, a hundred nations or so over thousands of years. But that said, the intent of world history is to really introduce people to the stories that um, aren't often heard. I mean, we see, for example, in 2010, uh, Strasser and Tinsman, uh, who are actually out of UCI, they're, uh, um, I actually took classes with Heidi Tinsman, one of the most brilliant historians of uh, South America, Latin America, and, and world history, but in particular taking a gender approach. And what one of the things that Yuli Strasser, who used to be at UCI, and Heidi Tinsman, who's still at UCI, did in their world history course at UCI is that they used the lens of gender. And there are other world history classes that use the lens of, for example, race or class. So they introduced these kind of interesting narratives, these kind of revisionist histories that were really epitomized um, or, or by the brilliant work of Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States. This attempt to go, you're already shifting the lens by doing a world history. By doing a world history, you're moving the lens away from Europe and you're pulling out what what William McNeil notes is history is like biology. You're looking at cells and microbes. World history is seeing the tree for the tree and the forest for the forest. It's what he calls, quote unquote, the bird's eye view. So you're already moving the lens outwards away from Europe to look at the globe. You're also moving the lens away from a chronology, 1800 to 20th century, and looking at, say, 500 years of history or 1,000 years of history. So you're moving that lens. But to also move the lens, not just chronologically and regionally, but thematically. Don't just tell a history of great men, you know, these great leaders, and then Napoleon was followed by so-and-so, and Winston Churchill, and George Washington, right? No, but instead... What would a world history look like if we told it from the perspective of women? About the debate about gender, about race, right? For example, if we were to do a world history of U.S. history of race, how would that change our story of U.S. history? So that's an intro to what world history is. Now, let's set that aside for one second and ask the question of what is the College Board and what is AP? AP is the advanced placement. It is run by this thing known as the College Board. Now, the College Board is uh, mistakenly, or I should say, uh, misleadingly named. They're not actually 
a college board. They're a completely non-profit organization uh, that exists outside of universities. They're an American non-profit. They were founded in 1899, uh, originally called the College Entrance Examination Board, CEEB. And what their job was is they created a deal with 6,000 schools or so within the United States in which they would examine high school students and therefore college readiness. These are the people that are in charge of the SATs. Any of you who have gone to college has probably taken the SATs at one point or another. The SATs, you get a good score on it, that lands you a good chance of getting into a good school. You don't do so well on the SATs, you don't. You maybe not go to the best of schools. The SATs end up becoming the gateway, the kind of entryway into academic or educational prestige. And it's run by this nonprofit. They basically worked with these colleges and said, look, we'll administer this test for you, we'll give you the score, and then you can make it. And then the college said, cool, this is a great shorthand to help us with the administration process. Now, the college board makes a lot of money off of the SAT. They charge you to take the SAT exam. They charge you for all the college preparatory classes. They charge you for all the college prep uh, material, all the kind of SAT prep uh, books that you pick up. In addition to the SAT, they also run the AP the advanced placement. Now, the advanced placement is a test that they will also they administer and that counts as college credit. But here's the thing. By creating that test, they have also therefore created the class. So they charge university or they charge high schools to teach a class. So V and I were talking right before the podcast how he took AP Euro. AP Euro uh, was kind of the last vestiges of Western Civ. Now you have AP Euro, AP US, AP World, which has been the norm for probably about 15 years or so. AP Euro, AP US, AP World are all year-long courses. All of those courses are charged by College Board. College Board charges anywhere from $600 to $6,000 for a high school in order for that high school to teach one of their test-approved or test-readiness classes. The job of that class for that one year that V took AP Euro, that uh, others took AP US or AP World, for example, I took AP Latin, for that one year, you were being prepared to take an examination at the end of it. What is in that exam is what shapes your curriculum. That's why this matters. Now, why should you care that the AP, the college board, has decided to change world history. If you've understood the kind of historiography that I've introduced here of how world history came about as an attempt to tell the story of us that moves the scale away from Europe, then the implications for why teaching world history as only post 1450s should be clear. It means that the stories that historians have worked so hard to recover, the historians of minorities, the, histor- the histories of minorities, the history of women, the history of, of, of the uh, subaltern, the histories of the global south, will all once again follow under a Eurocentric model. World history will still be Western Civ. It'll be Western Civ and the rest. The West 
and the rest. Because 1450s is the rise of European globalization. It conveniently ignores the globalization that we saw in the pre-modern world in China, in the Middle East, in North Africa. It conveniently ignores the Mediterranean history that was going on in the 12th century when you had these beautiful champagne fairs in France that involved goods that were coming from India. I mean, that's truly, truly a global moment. In other words, that history gets erased, and what ends up happening is that if you were a brown person or a black person, if you're Middle Eastern, if you're Asian, if you're African American, the only history that you'll get taught in world history is a history of your history being taught through the lens of slavery or colonialism. Now, I don't think people understand the repercussions of this. There's a lot of like kind of activism on the left that talks about this history as in regards to voices, that is, vis-a-vis representation. It's important to have multicultural representation. It's important to have multiple voices. But it's not just about representation. As I said in the beginning of this episode, history is about identity formation. And there's one group of people that really understand this, and that is nationalists. Nationalists have always understood the power of history. It's why they've been so invested in history education. It's why history education is one of the number one things that Republicans think about. If you were growing up in the United States right now and you're looking at the alt-right, if you look at all their arguments, everything that they say, it's rooted in two things. One, an obsession over biological or, or race science. And two, an argument about history. They are arguing about the history of America. And they are the direct products of the Western civilization histories that we taught. For years, that Western they're now repurposing that. We need to protect Western Civ from immigrants and migrants who are invaders. World history, the story of us, is the anecdote, is the an- antidote, I should say. It's the antidote to that type of xenophobic thinking. It is the story of us that helps us think beyond the Eurocentric model. It's more than representation. It's literally how we define ourselves as a people, how we define our relationship to society, and how we define our relationship to the state. History is a battleground which all of this takes place. We historians often feel like Cassandra, as I said, because we, we keep hammering this in. But I don't think we've done a good enough job explaining the stakes of why this is so important. I am a historian of the Middle East, but I was trained at UCI. UCI is the heart of world history at the university level. Um, after Northwest, after Northwestern University, UCI really adopted the uh, world history. And with the 2000s, the rise of global history, which is an even deeper root history version of world history that looks at global processes and big history that tries to combine the history of evolution even into it, environmental history, the histories of animals, etc. The global turn really told us the importance of world history and global history. UCI was ahead of the curve. They adopted it. As a Middle Eastern historian, as a historian of the Middle East, I am also trained as a world history. It's my second field. I teach classes in world history, and my methodologies are often global history methodologies. I'm not bound by national histories. My archives are found in colonial archives like Britain and France, but they're also found as far places as Ifsahan and Kabul and Herat and Bukhara and Balkh. And, and even Tehran. So it's all over the place. It's not just bound by, by nations. And that produces good history. Not just good history, but history that challenges the way we think about ourselves, that challenges the way we think about our society and the relationship that we have 
to the world around us. This shift is now going to de- kind of dismiss all pre-modern history, dismiss the history of other civilizations, because curriculums are shaped around AP exams. If the AP exam is only going to teach from 1450 and on, that is the only thing that teachers will teach, because they're just trying to get their students to pass the exam. The effects of this, at a time like this, where we're living in an era where that history is being challenged. I mean, we are literally living in a moment where children are being ripped from the home, from the arms of their family members, where immigration officials are are thinking about a process in which they can strip citizenship away from naturalized citizens. Think about that. We're living in that moment right now. And if you want any clearer example of why history matters, then listen to the arguments on the right. After the conf- let's take a look at this American moment to be totally American centric. Um, if after the uh, Civil War, most of the Confederates ended up saying we don't want statues and monuments and we want to reintegrate, the result was you ended up having uh, free black men running for office for the first time and black businesses thriving. The Reconstruction was an attempt to rewrite that history. White supremacist violence in the, in the form of the KKK ended up driving black people from office, destroying black businesses, ruining the black economy, uh, and so on and so forth. By the time the 1920s came around, there was an attempt to rewrite that history of the Civil War. It was no longer a war about slavery. It was about a lost cause about states' rights. But that states' rights language would become the cover for the new racial project. In 1924, at the same time that these histories were being rewritten, at the same time that these monuments were being erected that glorified the Confederate past, you also had the Racial Integrity Act often funded and supported by the very same people who were putting up monuments. And the Racial Integrity Act basically created the legal justification for two classes of citizens. First-class citizens would be people who were white, and anyone who had a single drop, quote-unquote single drop, would become second-class citizens. That battle for history was lost, and it was what produced the Confederate identity that still exists to this day. It's why people in 2018 wave Confederate flags. How did the Confederate flag, the flag of of failure and loss, how did Confederate monuments, the cause of failure and loss, become so integral to Southern identity? How did it become entwined into the myth of the lost cause? It was done by reworking the history textbooks, by teaching a different history in the South. That is the stakes. That's what happens when history is changed, when politics gets to decide what history is important and what history is not. At a moment when American citizenship that is reconsidered vis-a-vis through the lens of race, religion, and immigration, the changing of AP world history is going to have deep repercussions. I'm not being an alarmist. I'm being a realist. You will have a whole class of young, globally connected individuals who have these new radical spaces on the internet who will be told the story of us, and that story of us will erase the story of black people, the story of brown people, the story of the world. That has repercussions that I think will will impact our civic society. I'm going to end it here. Hopefully this was an interesting podcast. This was a bit of the P 
peek behind the curtain of history. This was not just a history podcast, but a podcast about historiography and history teaching and the politics of history. Maybe I lost some of you. Maybe you guys don't care about this. Maybe only us history nerds really care about this. But I see this and I see something very alarming. Um, I recommend all the books that I, I recommend. Uh, I mentioned here. I recommend the works of Burdell, definitely of William McNeil, but also the works of Yuli Strausser and Heidi Tinsman, who did brilliant work with gender history. Uh, there's a fantastic book called When Asia Was the World, which is a really good way of uh, of kind of moving away from the Eurocentric model. You can also look at Pankaj Mishra's book, Ruins of Empire, that looks at the intellectual history of Asia. Um, all of these are fantastic intros into uh, world history. All I can say is that hopefully those of you who care are listening and that something will come of this and that we can maybe push back on the college board and, and really save world history. As flawed as it is, as flawed as the structure is, it's desperately needed at a time like this. Anyways, thank you for tuning in. Remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Thank you.